Amen. Well, it's great to see you all again. Thank you for praying for me. Uh, by the way, if we haven't met, my name's Dan Jarvis, but I've been out a couple weeks, partially on assignment for some ministry activity, and then sick for a while. So I'm really glad to be better and officially all clear from sickness. That's, that's exciting. I feel great and glad to be back. So we're in the middle of the book of Acts as a church. If you want to turn to chapter 8, that's where we'll read today. And we're talking about how the Holy Spirit works within us. We're exploring that. We're asking for God's wisdom. Lord, how do you want to work in us in our day? We read the book of Acts and we see in it an example of what happens when people say yes to God and when they go all in for Christ, when they really follow Jesus and trust the Holy Spirit's power. We see amazing things start to happen. We see gospel multiplication. We see love being extended in unique, sometimes supernatural ways. We'll see that today in the reading. What I'm interested in is not just what can we learn about what happened, but Lord, what what do you want to do with us now in the future as we go forward? How how should our lives reflect these Book of Acts realities? Okay, so a couple weeks ago, we learned that there are two things that are guaranteed in a Christian's life. Now, if you're a Christian in name only, you won't have either of these two things. But if you're really in your heart, if you're following Jesus, we can guarantee you, you'll have opportunity, that is every moment of your life becomes an opportunity in which God can work. Sometimes even the mundane and simple things are the platform from which God does something that you don't expect. The other thing that is guaranteed is opposition. Right? That if you really follow Jesus, there will be pushback in your life, maybe from people close to you, maybe from the culture that you live in. But one way or another, uh, it won't all be easy street. As a Christian, you'll be, you'll be under the gun a little bit. Jesus said, don't be surprised if people hate you. He said, don't take it personally. They're not really hating you. They're actually hating me because they're hating God. So we recognize Um, we have both opportunity and opposition coming at us as Christians. And the more we follow Jesus, the more we'll feel both of those dynamics. In Acts 8, we see both of those things happening, but they're starting to ratchet up the scale a little bit. Uh, Each each chapter of the book of Acts, we see not only God's power, but we we also sense that things are multiplying. Okay, so last week, Pastor Dell walked us through chapter 6, part of chapter 7, and then the first verse of chapter 8, where we learned that Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, was leading opposition against the churches, right? He was against the church, against all the believers who were there so far. There were thousands of believers in Jerusalem as they started to become more and more of a threat to the status quo. People like Saul started standing up and saying, hold on, this can't happen, We can't let this message continue to spread, and that's where we pick up our narrative in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Okay, remember also, as we pick up this chapter, they've just killed Stephen. He was one of the leaders in the church. He was known as the first Christian martyr. So after they killed Jesus, and Jesus rose from the dead, Stephen is the next person who gives his life because he's a Christ follower, the first, sadly, of many throughout history. We'll pick up the story in verse... 1 of chapter 8. Saul was one of the witnesses of Stephen's death, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. 
Now, from a strategy perspective, remember what the commission had been. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then where? Judea and Samaria. Okay, so that's actually happening here, and the the persecution, little do the persecutors know, they're actually helping fulfill Jesus' command because they're spreading everybody out throughout Judea and Samaria. It says, some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. In the first part of chapter 9, we read that Saul is out there breathing murderous threats. I mean, he is serious, he is intense. As much as he can, he's trying to stifle and stop the spread of Christianity. He doesn't succeed, spoiler. Verse 4, but the believers were scattered, or the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. Many had been paralyzed or lame. They were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result, many women, men and women were baptized, and Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. Now, just as a quick pause, why would that be really significant? I mean, the goal is to get the gospel everywhere, right? So here we are in Samaria. You remember from even stories as Jesus walked with his disciples, Samaria was not friendly territory to Jews. And so when they got this word that the Samaritans were starting to believe, they dispatched the two top leaders to check this out. Is this real? Um, what we're, hear, we're hearing reports that the gospel's spreading just like Jesus said it would. We want to go make sure this is real. They go, Peter and John are there, and they see the Holy Spirit come upon Samaritan believers, and then they know, hey, our, the past is the past. We're one family now, and a Samaritan believer, a Jewish believer, and eventually any Gentile believer, there's any believer from anywhere in the world, all of us are united as one family in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we read in verse uh, 15, as soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had not yet come upon any of them because they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on these believers and they received the Holy Spirit. So a really significant step in the development of the church and the global expansion of the gospel. And Simon the sorcerer, he's watching this and he's like, wow, that's, that's a lot of power. I wouldn't mind having power like that to wow people with. It says, when Simon saw the Spirit was given and the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they'll receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. 
You have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps He will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and held captive by sin. Pray for the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem And they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. So what what we have here is one example of what is quickly becoming a multiplying movement that's almost out of control, right? There's not even a way to report on everything that's happening because we get summary verses where it'll say, and by the way, they stopped in many other villages and preached the good news. And who knows how many miracles were done or how many people accepted Christ in that time. But we know that the gospel is starting to rapidly expand through the people who are out there casting the vision, sharing the message. Okay, well, Philip wasn't done. Look at the next verse. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down to the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and maybe just by happenstance, although we'll see, not really, he happened to meet who? I mean, who would you meet if you were on the desert road to Gaza? you would meet the treasurer of Ethiopia, okay? So that's who he met. The eunuch of great authority under Candace, or Kandaki, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he's now returning. Remember, he was in Jerusalem, along with many others from around the world, for the day of Pentecost. So here's a faithful person who's in Ethiopia that's been serving God all along from an Old Testament perspective. He has an open heart, God knew that, and God sent Philip to preach the gospel to him. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk beside that carriage. Okay, they say, what does the prompting of the Holy Spirit sound like? That's what it sounds like. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? Now again, if you were trying to chalk this all up to coincidence, he could have been anywhere in the Old Testament, right? Could have been the Levitical law somewhere, could have been lost in some psalm about being upset with the world. But what does he happen to be reading at that particular moment? A prophecy about the Messiah Jesus, and the guy's curiosity is literally saying, who is this about? Okay, it's the ultimate open-door opportunity. So the passage of Scripture he's reading was, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. A lamb is silent before the shearers, and he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was this prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with that same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? And he ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Then they came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself further north at the town of Aztos. He preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea. Okay, so Philip's living a pretty action-packed life here, wouldn't you agree? Um, As the Holy Spirit is working in him, he's just out there saying yes to God. 
God says, go over here, he goes. God says, okay, now I need you over here, he goes. And each time he responds to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, something supernatural happens and the gospel is extended. All that Philip had to do was be ready to say yes to the Holy Spirit and ready to share the gospel. Okay? Jesus took care of everything else as far as how this would all unfold. So I wanted to look at this text from the perspective of what was happening, but also what does it mean for you and I who, believe it or not, as much as we might feel distant from this, are carrying within us the same power, the same Holy Spirit that Philip had along with him. Okay? So let's, let's break it down. At the very beginning of this, we, we have something that the tide turns as far as the momentum of things in the culture around these early Christians. There, there was resistance all along, obviously, uh, but there was also great favor. Remember, the, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. People were becoming Christians every day. A lot of even the priests that said were becoming Christians. There was a lot of good news as far as the expansion of the movement. In chapter 8, we see organized resistance. And so suddenly, the church has to make a decision. If you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower in this moment, what are you going to do knowing that there's now an organized attempt to attack you? So think of that right now. If that was the case today, what choices would you have in front of you? You could potentially try to run, right, or hide. Maybe you arm up and try to rebel. Maybe you double down and keep doing what you're doing. What did the early church decide to do? They did scatter. We know that. They had to, right? They were under threat of death. They were getting pulled out of their homes. But them moving locations did not change their mission. Uh, they, that scattering actually became the engine that drove the gospel out of Jerusalem and into the rest of the world where it was supposed to be all along. I think about the choices that they had to make as a whole group and then individually. In our terms, we might look at it this way. They had to either start playing defense or stay on offense. And which one did they pick? As you read these stories, what does this sound like? What does Philip sound like? Was he on defense? Doesn't seem like it. Uh, he was out there sharing Jesus and responding to God. And, and notice even the, the little verses at the end of both of the stories, kind of like, and then they continued to preach. And in every village, there were people out there preaching the gospel. Uh, the gospel was the power of God that was out there. And the Holy Spirit was using that this persecution did not slow them down. In fact, it steeled their resolve to stay on offense. Because as soon as you go on defense, what happens? You stop moving forward. The movement stops, things institutionalize, things hunker down. But if you stay on offense, you, you can continue to have momentum. It's interesting to think about defense versus offense throughout the first eight chapters of Acts. Who was actually on defense the whole time? It was the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders, anybody that was trying to resist the gospel. They were on defense, right? They were the ones where things felt out of control. The church was rolling forward, and nothing was slowing them down, even these persecutions. Okay, so we, we read this. The, the believers who were scattered, they preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. And then there's this sort of like a side note. Philip, for example, which I think is really interesting, because Philip wasn't just, it wasn't like there was one superhero in the story. There were thousands of people who were believers. And we know that there were, at least seven, there were at least six other people like Philip who had sort of a lead role in the church that weren't apostles. 
that were out doing their thing, and then there were many, many other people moving around the area sharing about Jesus. Philip was just an example of the kind of things the Holy Spirit was doing all over the place. So what an exciting time to have a testimony service at the church, right? And if you were, you would say, man, here's, here's Philip's story, and then there'd be 35 other people ready to get up and say, well, here's what happened when I went to this other town, or here's how the Holy Spirit worked through this situation, or here's this demon that was cast out, here's this healing that happened, uh, here, here's this riot that started, but then we got to preach the gospel. Those kinds of things were happening over and over and over again, because the church was on offense. They weren't giving up the Great Commission just because there was pressure, right? So, I want to give you five reasons why offense is better than defense for a church. And I actually got these from a coach who planted a church himself down in West Palm Beach, and the the church actually calls him coach. They don't call him pastor, which I think is kind of cool, because in a lot of ways, that is like the pastoral role has a lot to do with coaching. Um, And so Coach Tom Mullins uh, offers these five reasons why offense is better than defense, not just on a football field, but in church, okay, and in, in our movement, in our gospel life with Christ. Here's the first one. When you're on offense, you get to initiate the pressure instead of reacting to it. So when we're feeling self-protective, we read texts like this, and we're all worried about the pressure that, like, the Christians were feeling, the pressure that had to make them scatter, the pressure about, like, man, what if they had to give up their lives? But when you actually read the story and think about how people were, were operating, the people under pressure were actually the Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities and all the people who represented the old guard and the old ways. The Christianity was the pressure that was being brought to bear. And, uh, and when you're on offense, you get to be the one that decides when to move forward for something. You're not just waiting for something bad to happen and then try to react to it. Second thing is you lead from your point of strength instead of having to defend at your point of weakness. And we know from the book of Acts and from our own lives that when the gospel is out there, when we're preaching the gospel and loving in Jesus' name, that is our point of strength, right? If, we can, if that's the story, we'll win that storyline every time. That's where the power is. That's where God works. We don't win when we're on defense, when we're trying to protect what we have or hunker down or uh, fight political battles. That's all, that's all a losing game. But when we get on offense and we say, you know what, the gospel goes forward, that's where we get to lead at our point of strength. Okay? Obviously, when you're on offense, you get to take ground instead of just holding ground. And I would ask you if you think about um, the Christian movement in the West. So think about Europe, North America, the other Western countries, Australia, places like that. Would you say in the last few decades that the Christian movement has been taking new ground or holding ground? Or would you even say that we're holding ground? Say, man, we're losing ground, right? It feels like we're going the wrong direction. Why is that? At some point in the last few decades, we switched from offense to defense. And you can't win on defense. The only time defense scores is when? And they intercept the ball, and then they act like they're on offense, right? Otherwise, defense, all the best you can do on defense is hold, hold the bad guys back a little bit longer. But when you decide to turn it around and say, no, we're taking the fight to them, we're going for it, uh, that's when points are scored, that's when the win happens. And so if you want to advance the Christian movement, you can't think of doing that from your mountain cabin, right? 
you're saying, no, no, we've got to get out there and move forward uh, if we're going to take ground. The fourth reason the offense is better than defense is you control the pace of the game, the pace doesn't control you. All right, in Acts 1 through 8, the pace of the game was definitely set by the resurrection of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then the movement of the apostles and all the believers out into the world. And there was nothing that the, even though they tried, and we know in the decades that follow the story we're reading right now, the persecutions intensified, things got deadlier, things got bloodier. And even in all of that, they couldn't stop the movement of the church. The only times in history when the movement of the church stops or slows down is when churches get into a defensive mindset. And when they start thinking, how do I protect what I have? How do I hold the line? Um, if you're not moving forward, eventually you'll be pushed back. Okay? So if you want to control the pace of the game, you get on offense. And then the last thing is you have the ball. <clears throat> you have the ball so you can score. Right? You, you won't score. You won't make the difference. You won't see the life transformation if you're not out there leading the change, if you're not out there with the gospel in your hands. So we have to get on offense, right? Just like the churches, um, the, the early church did, and just like churches around the world, if you look around and say, where are churches growing? Where is the gospel moving? Where are their miracles happening? It's where people are out on the front lines on offense. Uh, no one wins on defense, okay? So we recognize in Acts that the bad guys, as it were, were the ones on defense, and our goal as Christian believers throughout history, we're, we keep it that way. We should always be pressing ahead and saying, how do we reach the next population? How do we reach the next generation? Um, we could leave behind everything we have and change all of it if we had to, to go and reach the next person. Lord, give us the grace to stay on offense and to not play defense. In spiritual battle, this is always a choice. Okay, now here, here's, I've been thinking about this a lot because I, there's so much of what's happening culturally right now that feels like we're on defense, right? Don't you feel that? I mean, that's the, that doesn't mean you're winning if you feel that way. Um, it means the best you're going to do is hold on to something maybe for a few months, a few years longer, and you still lose it. Um, but I believe when it comes to the spiritual battle that we're engaged in, that this is always a choice. The world doesn't have the power to put us on defense. Only we do. Okay? So defense is when you step back and you say, I'll wait, I'll try to react to what's happening, I'll be ready for the incoming fire. Um, but if we're actively strategizing how to reach, how to go, how to change things, um, that's our choice. So we can pick whether we're on defense or offense. So if you would say in your own life, man, my Christian life, I feel like I play defense, or I feel like my church is playing defense. I feel like my mentality is a defensive mentality. That's a choice you're making. No one's forcing that. In fact, the Holy Spirit in you would be pushing you to go, not to hunker down. Okay, so we have this choice, and then we look at Philip, for example. Um, and I was just struck by that phrase because Philip wasn't, it wasn't like there was one guy where the apostles said, you know what, we're going to pick that guy and send him to do these super strategic things. Philip was just one of a lot of people who were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so a couple questions for you. Did Philip have any spiritual power that we don't have access to right now? So if Philip was an apostle... You know, maybe you could argue that. You say, oh, you know, wow, you know, he, was, he was there like with Jesus at the Last Supper or something. But Philip wasn't one of those. There was an apostle named Philip, but this is a different guy. Philip was just a believer like you or I who 
filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom. He was commissioned by the church to go, and he went, right? It's not that complicated. Okay, did Philip have any special abilities to open hearts to God? Like when Philip was jogging next to that Ethiopian chariot, did the guy look over and go, wow, man, I'm in the presence of Philip. Oh, man, I need to ask that guy gospel questions. No, Philip wasn't even the reason that this was happening, right? The Holy Spirit was the hero of the story. Philip was just the mouthpiece. And so Philip didn't have anything special about it. He wasn't like some sort of superstar speaker. Um, he didn't have an amazing, whatever, amazing platform to start with. He was just responding to God and following the Holy Spirit's guidance, and God put him in the way of the people that needed to hear the message. Did Philip have any advanced intelligence on who he should specifically talk to? Did Philip wake up on a Tuesday morning and go, you know what? I'm just feeling a burden for the treasurer of Ethiopia today. I need to go find that guy. I wonder where he's at. Lord, show me where to go. No, there... Philip didn't even know what his mission was in the specific sense. He just knew he was supposed to go and he was supposed to be ready. And that as he would go, the commission was, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Wherever you go, as you go, keep going. So what did Philip have? He had the same Acts 1-8 commission that you and I have. Same power of the Holy Spirit, same access to the truth, same personal testimony of, you know, Philip had his life transformed by the gospel somehow, so he would have had a before and after story too. He started with who he was and what he had. He'd proven faithful to serve God when he was given opportunity, and then when the Holy Spirit called him, he went. It was really not that much more complicated than that. So whatever it is that we see happening in Philip's life is not because of Philip. Just like whatever we'll see happen in your life is not because of you. As you say yes to God, you'll unlock the power of the Holy Spirit and God will start doing things in and through you that you wouldn't have thought up on your own. You would not imagine would ever happen. And where will that happen? It'll happen everywhere as you go, as you're out on the street, as you're running next to a chariot, uh, as you go to school, as you're, as you're operating at work. Whatever it is that you do, you recognize in this moment, I am an ambassador for Christ and I am on offense. I am here in this world to take ground for the kingdom. So Lord, where do you want to send me? What do you want to do with me? Uh, go on offense and see what God accomplishes through you. So a lot of the things that we're talking about here at the church are about this, going on offense, saying, how do we get out there? Uh, we won't win the battle for our culture in this room just won't happen. This is the huddle. This isn't where the play gets run. This is where we team up and talk about it and get our game plan together, and then we go. So as we go, we say, Lord, give us the strength that we're going to need. Um, no matter where you are, you can expect to be a witness because that is your core calling, no matter what your job description is, right? Because you could look back at this and go, wasn't Philip a deacon in the church? He wasn't. What was his actual job? Remember the original deacon job in Acts 6? Yeah, he, was, he, was, he was taking care of the widow's food program in the church. So he, it wasn't on his like, church job description to go run next to chariots and talk to the Ethiopian people, right? He was just ready to go. Like, Lord, send me. Whatever you want me to do, I'm, I'm available for you. Expect divine appointments. Right? Expect that as you have this open heart to God, that God is the one doing the work in people's lives. He'll point you to the open people. 
This is what's fun about this. You walk out in the world with confidence. You don't go, well, you know, man, people are closed out there. People are hard-hearted. I don't think I'll bother because I know people aren't probably very responsive. You don't know that. You, you, you might suspect that somebody's unresponsive, but guess what? God is at work in their life in ways you can't see. Your job is to be a witness and expect that appointments you're a part of, they might be divine appointments, right? And maybe they're not. And maybe you talk to somebody for no real reason, but what harm is there in that anyway? Okay? Expect that God is already at work. You're, you're planning on this. You're partnering with God. This isn't that you go out and make it happen. This is you say, Lord, I know you'll make it happen if I go out. So I'm, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready to move. So I was looking at verse 4 again and thinking about that dynamic of, you know, here's all these believers, and so many of them are just new Christians themselves, and now they're having to scatter, and they're taking the gospel with them wherever they go. Thinking, what if we looked at verse 4, but rewrote it a little bit for ourselves? What would that verse look like? Maybe like this. The believers who left BCBC on May 28, 2023, preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Your name, for example. And then what would follow that would be the story of how God works in you. In the things that you're already doing, or maybe in the crazy curveball he throws you that you weren't expecting. All of us would be living an example of what a spirit-filled, empowered life looks like. If all of us say with the same heart that Philip did, yes, Lord, you say so, I'll go for it even if it seems crazy. And we say, Lord, all of us are going to get to live this life. We all get to be a part of this Book of Acts movement because it's not done. It's not done until Jesus comes back and wraps up history. But for right now, we're still on mission for him wherever we go. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now here we are off at the ends of the earth. Okay, so the question we're asking every week this summer is this simple. Holy Spirit, what do you want to do within us? I wonder if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes just to have a moment of prayer and ask the Holy Spirit this question personally. Holy Spirit, what do you want to do within me? Where do you want to send me? How do you want me to be ready? How do you want my attitude toward things to change so that I am ready? Lord, thank you for calling us to go and to get on offense and start running forward for your kingdom's purpose. We don't want to live out the balance of our lives and only celebrate where we held the line. Lord, we want to move things forward. We want to see people reach for the gospel. We want to see love extended into dark places. We want to see hope brought to the hopeless. We want to see needs met. We want to see miracles happen. Lord, we want your spirit to guide us to the places we need to go to meet and speak with the people that you would call us to speak with, to make the difference that, Lord, you're already preparing for us to make. 
would you forgive us for our lack of faith when we get on defense and we think that somehow we'll hold something together when, Lord, we've never been called to hold, we've been called to move. You give us the strength and the courage we'll need to stand up and move out. And I pray, Lord, that each of our lives would be an example of your power at work, just like Philip. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with the wisdom that we'll need. And Lord, send us out. Guide our steps. We look forward to taking territory for your glory and for the love of the people we meet. We commit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God bless you. We'll see you next week for the next part of the book of Acts.